Hello, welcome to Convergent Dialogues. This is Xavier Bonilla. On this episode, I'm very happy to have back on the podcast, uh, Dana Staff. Dana is a wonderful, wonderful person that is uh, knows pretty much so many things about uh, cephalopods and octopus and squid and nautilus. And so uh, she was on the podcast previously, uh, episode 93, entitled 500 Million Years of Cephalopods. And uh, that is where we've talked about her prior book, uh, Monarchs of the Sea, the Extraordinary 500 Million Year History of Cephalopods. And she has a, a new book. She's had a, actually a handful of books since then, but a new one out, um, which is called The Lives of Octopuses and Their Relatives, A Natural History of Cephalopods. And uh, that's the book we, we talk about in the conversation. Uh, we start out by talking about what are cephalopods and their family. So who's in that family in that group? We talk about the anatomy of cephalopods. We talk about behaviors of cephalopods, such as jet propulsion, walking, camouflage. We talk about intelligence and consciousness in cephalopods. Uh, convergent evolution as a possible reason for why maybe they have certain things that they do. How they're able to live outside of water. How cephalopods diversified and spread across different bodies of water all over the world. How cephalopods are different in different environments the impact of climate change on, on cephalopods, and many other uh, topics. Uh, Dana is, is uh, quite brilliant. Um, she's uh, got her PhD from Stanford and has been widely published. And as she says in the beginning, she's kind of taken much of her time now to just be a science communicator. Uh, so less of, uh, you know, in a, in a research lab, uh, and more of how to communicate science, which I think is absolutely tremendous. We need good science communicators that are giving accurate information that have done research that know how to do research, but then know how to explain it uh, in different ways. So as I mentioned uh, at the top, she's got the, the history of cephalopods, Monarchs of the Sea. That's a great book. We talk about that. She has a new one out, which is this natural history of cephalopods. Um, she also has uh, a book, A Nurse, Nursery Earth, The Wondrous Lives of Baby Animals in Extraordinary Ways They Shape Our World. Um, she has The Lady of the Octopus, um, how Janine Power invented uh, aquariums and revolutionized marine biology. So she's, she's writing, you know, history of, of scientists that study cephalopods. She's writing about cephalopods. She's writing kids' books. She's doing it all. And uh, she's, she's so lovely, uh, so brilliant. Um, I... When I first had her on, I, I really wanted to get her back on again, and uh, her new book was uh, was a great excuse to do that. So she's she's uh, I'm sure she'll make another appearance on here at some point in the future as well. Um, as always, you can find this conversation and all other conversations at Converging Dialogues at Substack.com. So get over there and subscribe and follow and like and share. Also on YouTube, you can do the same: follow, subscribe, and uh, contribute if you'd like. And uh, now I bring you. Donna, stop. I'm here with Dana Stoff. Uh, Dana, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Uh, we, we had such a fabulous conversation, and I told you I'd want you back on, and so here we are. So I'm glad that you agreed to come back on. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, yes. We have a, a, a mutual love of everything octopuses. Of course, you do the work and do all the research and you're doing so many wonderful things. And I'm just a, uh, a fan of them, but you're actually doing the work. You have, uh, we were talking about before we got on, an absolutely one-stop shop, lovely uh, book through the wonderful Princeton. It's called The Lives of Octopuses and Their Relatives, A Natural History of Cephalopods. Everyone should pick it up if you love cephalopods or octopuses. It's got color uh, pictures in here. It's got maps. It's uh, it's not huge, which is great. Some of these tend to be really big and heavy. It's not that, and um, it is like that that perfect introduction to octopuses and cephalopods that you want. Uh, so it's just it's just tremendous. It's absolutely. I feel I feel really special. They Princeton sent it to me. I was so happy when they did. I was so excited. So it's marvelous. The content's great. Um, and so we're going to talk all about octopuses. So, um, yeah, just remind folks, um, kind of what you do, uh, is your, your day job and then how you came about, uh, putting this together. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for, for that question. It's a great segue because, um, 
I uh, started out as a academic researcher. So I was in the laboratory working on cephalopods, which are octopus and squid, which we'll get into mostly squid actually. Mm. Um, and, and also out in the field going on boats to, to catch squid out in the wild, study what their behavior was. And I did that for a number of years. And then I actually transitioned into science writing, mm. which is what I do now. I'm an author of books about science for the general public, for all ages. I have some that are aimed at a younger audience and some that for, are for adults. And, and I love doing it. And it's, it's funny, it's because you were sort of kind of appreciating getting to be a fan and, and consume this stuff. And I actually consider myself to be a bit in the same position or rather in an intermediate position mm. because I'm not in the laboratory anymore. I'm not really like actually hands-on doing the academic research or like the, the research where we're doing experiments. Um, what I get to do is I get to go into other people's laboratories <laughs> and ask them questions um, and read the papers that they write. and like there's so many amazing scientists working in this field. And I just feel really lucky that I have connections with a lot of them, that they're incredibly kind and fun and generous people that I get to keep up with their research. And then I, so I sort of see myself as like, almost like the waiter in the restaurant, mm. like the, the scientists are their chefs uh, <laughs> kind of behind the scenes, like actually finding out the new facts. And then I get to be the one who often brings those facts to people who've maybe never heard them before. Um, so I try to be a really, really good waiter, really responsive to what people need, but also really true to what the chefs are actually doing back there. Listen, we need we need folks like you. It's it's tremendous. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of scientists don't know how to communicate their science. That's not their fault. That's not usually the training they have, which is totally fine. So we need we need folks like you. We need folks to okay, people do good science. They're in the lab. They're doing research. They're out in the ocean, and then people to kind of sorts translate it and synthesize it for a general audience that doesn't take away from the data, but is also, you know, illuminating what's, uh, what's going on. So, uh, I, I just see folks like yourself, super essential. So, um, so in the last conversation we had, when you, when you were on first, you had a book, uh, that we talked about, which was, some I'm forgetting the title now, but it was about the 500 million year, uh, journey or story of, of, uh, of octopuses. And that was Monarchs of the Sea. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Monarchs of the yeah. Sea. So everyone should buy that book and listen to our conversation. <laughs> and so we talked a lot about like, like deep, deep, like ancient history of, of these wonderful uh, animals. And we didn't really talk about uh, current uh, squids and octopus and nautilus and, and the whole family. So that's what we can, we can spend some time here today. Yeah, it's perfect because there's such a such a rich fossil history. Uh-huh. You could just talk for hours about ammonites and belemnites and all of these weird mm-hmm. ancestors. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, let's look into the oceans and see who we share the planet with today. Yeah, so so most people will know that there's um, octopuses. They've you know maybe seen cartoons or films or things like that, and maybe squids too. But there's this family of cephalopods. So maybe tell us what is a cephalopod, what its makeup is, what it's like. What, how, what the kind of contours of that definition and, and uh, who's in that big family? So cephalopods are a group of, of mollusks, a subgroup. And mollusk is a huge group of animals. That includes all of the snails, all of the slugs, both on land and in the sea, uh, all of the clams and mussels, all of the oysters. It's basically everything soft and squishy. The word mollusk actually means soft. Um, And most of them have shells to protect their soft, squishy bits. So within that big group of mollusks, the snails and clams and everybody, that we have the cephalopods. um, And they're really like a really special group of mollusks. Their name, cephalopod, means head foot. (laughs) And that's because of the way their body is organized. And so I have this little mental exercise. Don't literally do this. (laughs) But if you wanted to turn your body into a cephalopod, It's very straightforward. What you need to do is cut off your arms and legs (laughs) right at the torso. So you're just a head and a torso. And then you take your arms and legs and attach them to your lips. And now your body is organized like a cephalopod, head, foot. It's the, Mm. the feet or the arms being attached directly to the head instead of to the torso. Now, the the equivalent of a torso is called a mantle in a cephalopod. It's a big sack-like body that has all their organs in it, Mm. their gills, their hearts. They have three hearts, Mm -hmm. uh, their liver, their stomach, and all of their digestive and reproductive organs. And it hangs off the back of their head, 
And the head, just like our head, has their eyes, which are large and complex, much more complicated than other mollusks. And same with their brains. They're, they're, the shorthand is that cephalopods are brainy mollusks. <laughs> the, the ceph, the head, is really where it's at. And you can kind of use that also to remember how they're built. The, the head is central. It's literally in the middle. The mantle's hanging off one side, and then the arms are hanging off the other side. And they all have at least eight arms. And then from there, it gets complicated. Octopuses have exactly eight arms. And again, they're, they're all around the mouth. So the mouth is at the center of those arms. And then squid and cuttlefish have eight arms and also two tentacles. Mm. So this is a tricky thing. Technically, octopuses do not have tentacles. Mm. But a lot of books that you'll read, media that you'll consume, will talk about octopus tentacles. And honestly, I don't make that big of a deal about it because scientifically speaking, it's important to use the right word when you're doing an academic paper, because, you know, especially if you're researching squid and their, their two tentacles are different from their arms. But if, if it's sort of in casual conversation, I, I try not to like shut down the conversation and be like, you're using the wrong word. <laughs> is, the, is there a distinct the, difference in their either functionality is. of sorts? So the tentacles of squid and cuttlefish are elastic. They stretch and retract. Whereas the arms of an octopus or a squid or a cuttlefish are basically a fixed length. They're very muscular. They're not going to get much longer or shorter, but they're very bendy. They can curve into almost any shape and they're lined with suction cups. An arm has suction cups on the whole length from the base to the tip. Mm -hmm. And the tentacles, because they are this elastic, stretchy, they need to be able to retract all the way back and then shoot out super fast. They don't have suction cups except at the very tip. Mm. And the tip of a tentacle has a, a manus or a club that sort of looks like hand-shaped mm-hmm. without fingers. Mm-hmm. And that is where all of the suction cups are on a tentacle. Mm. And so with cephalopods, the family is octopuses, squid, it, just as a footnote, if you mentioned before, but it's octopuses, right? We don't say octopi, right? Is it? <laughs> You can. Once again, I'm not going to cut off a conversation with somebody because they said octopi, unless they ask. And then I have a whole lecture. But um, but the beautiful thing about English, I'm a bit of a, of a language nerd as well. The beautiful thing about English is that, like, if you use a word enough, it gets in the dictionary. We have, we have <laughs> a very true. flexible That's language. True. And so octopuses... Octopi mm-hmm. and octopodes. Oh, I've never heard are that. All one. accepted plural. Oh, that's wild. <laughs> octopodes is the nerdiest because it goes back to the roots of the word uh, in ancient Greek it. and pluralizes it as if it were a Greek word. Uh-huh. So you have octopuses. That's how I, I, I use the plural. Uh, Go for it. That's what I do. Squid <laughs> and cuttlefish. And then we also have the Nautilus, which I think it was our conversation that like I had this newfound love for the Nautilus. I think it's a fascinating, fascinating animal. Um, they're very, they're the underrated cephalopod, yeah, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the fact that they're, they really have not changed that much in millions of years is what blows my mind. Like it just, I can't really comprehend it. And then, and is that it? Those are the four for, for cephalopods. It's yes and no. Um, those are the, those are the common words that we have in English to describe (laughs) the different groups of modern cephalopods. Um, but there are actually a lot of different groups that we call squid, um, that are pretty different from each other. For example, there are bobtail squid, Mm -hmm. which are tiny round little blobby things that are very different from both in shape and behavior and habitat from the kind of squid that you might see as sold as calamari on the market, for example. Mm-hmm. And then you have the vampire squid, which is actually more closely related to an octopus. Their history goes back to the octopuses. And, and again, both their physical form and their behavior and their habitat are pretty different from other kinds of squid. Mm-hmm. So, so that's why I say yes and no. Like Those are the, the general names that we have for cephalopods. But then when you drill into it, there's some pretty wild variation. Mm-hmm. So... Again, we, we, I won't talk about like when was the first cephalopod and all that. People can listen to the first conversation. We did, we did that. <laughs> but maybe talk about a little bit of, I don't think we talked about this in the previous conversation, maybe just a little bit about a little bit about their, their kind of makeup and their behavior and how they do things. So they have uh, jet propulsion. Their mating mm-hmm. is really interesting. How they can, um, the, the mating is actually super interesting because like their their sides change color or whatever based on how they're mating with people. <laughs> um, they can camouflage, they communicate, they can live outside of water. There's all these interesting behavioral uh, features. So maybe just kind of describe generally uh, or with octopuses or maybe how squid don't do some of those things or whatever. 
kind of some of their behaviors or 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 how they function kind of um, generally, and then we'll talk about specific areas. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is really where where most of us get really into cephalopods is in their behaviors, in the stuff they do, because it tends to be a lot flashier and a lot more exciting than the stuff that a snail or a clam does. Although I have a lot of love for snails and clams. We can talk about that another time. But um, they're very active in general. They tend to uh, be able to move quickly. And part of that is the way that they swim by jet propulsion. Um, Now, jet propulsion is actually super rare in the animal kingdom. Mm -hmm. It's only cephalopods and one other group of invertebrates called the salps that do it Mm. by filling their body with water and then squirting it out of a narrow opening. And that propels the body in the opposite direction. And uh, squid in particular have really mastered this technique and it makes them some of the fastest swimmers in the ocean to the point that there's a whole group of squid called flying squid that can actually propel themselves fast enough underwater to jet up out of the water. And they, they continue squirting out water while they're in the air, which propels them even further. Wow. And, and they're like flying fish. They'll do it to escape predators. Um, we don't really know. There might be more reasons why they do it as well. It might be part of their migration strategies. Um, but, uh, but even octopuses can engage in jet propulsion. But the more common type of movement that you'll see in octopuses is crawling around. Mm -hmm. And all those arms and suckers really come into their own here because they can go in any direction. They can squeeze through tiny, tiny shapes, tiny, tiny um, openings because octopuses don't have any hard parts other than that beak, which is their mouth is a hard beak in the middle of the arms. Um, And octopuses have also been observed. This is some of the coolest research really in the last... um, couple of decades walking yeah, on two legs, this, yeah. two of their arms. Mm-hmm. They sort of gather everything else up, all the other six arms to look like algae or to, to help their camouflage. And then they'll use two to walk mm-hmm. bipedal locomotion, mm-hmm. which again is very rarely observed outside of humans is very, was very exciting when it got documented. So, and so that brings us to camouflage. So yeah. the way that the animal is moving also is it's not independent of what it's trying to look like. Mm -hmm. And again, octopuses more so than squid generally are often trying to not just blend in with, but imitate part of their environment. Mm. So they may do a general pattern matching where they're just trying to look like sand or like rocks, but they'll often do, they can um, not just change all of the colors of their skin, but also the textures of it so that they can look like a piece of algae, for example. And that, or, or like a specific animal, the mimic octopus is famous for being able to imitate a fish, uh, a shrimp, an eel, a bunch of different things, and they'll move like that animal. So it's all, it's all connected and it's all under control of this incredible nervous system that they have, which is not just the central brain in the head, but also like quite complex extra ganglia, which are sometimes referred to as brains themselves in the arms Mm. that are helping to coordinate all this complex movement. If you imagine it, we have four limbs, two arms and two legs, and each one has a kind of limited range of motion, Mm -hmm. like just a limited number of joints that can only move in certain directions. And octopus arms are basically limitless um, Mm. in terms of joints, in terms of movement. And it's thought that that actually may be part of what drove or at least, um, evolved alongside the complexity of their brains. Hmm. They have such a open-ended body plan that they, the more complex the brain got, the more they could do with that. Hmm. And that, beca- that was so advantageous that, that that sort of led, natural selection led to what we have today, which are cephalopods, and it's been best studied in octopuses, with a huge range of potential behaviors. So it's not that they're, I've heard some mixed things on this. I mean, they don't, they're, they have a brain, right? They do have an actual brain, mm-hmm. but that they do, they have neurons in, in the arms or no? Right. Mm. Right. They have what are called ganglia, which are quite, quite thick bundles of neurons and, uh-huh. and they're able to, um, and so those can actually do sort of decision-making and movement without needing to send signals back to the central brain. Mm. Um, some of the studies that really caught my attention were showing that an octopus without that uh, had its arm through an opening in a wall that was small enough that it couldn't see, you know, that this, the, uh, the central brain 
couldn't be gathering any information that the arm didn't have. Um, the, the arm itself is able to do things like find food um, or explore that environment, even when the eyes and the central brain aren't really like parsing what's going on there. Mm. And one of the things that I really enjoy that I've seen a bit in science fiction recently is authors exploring like, what does this feel like for a cephalopod? Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's, there's a great book um, called Children of Ruin by Adrian Tchaikovsky that explores like, what would it be like to be an octopus? And he sort of goes out into the far future where octopuses have evolved to a point of having sort of a society and a culture. And they have this very like sort of, um, they, they don't know entirely what, what or why their bodies and brains are doing. Mm. They have a, like a sort of distributed nervous system in the body and in the arms that's doing stuff. And then also the central nervous system that's doing its own thing. And it's sort of like slightly disconnected. So that's speculative. It's hard to know what it's really like. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the skin itself is highly innervated. It means there's mm-hmm. lots of nerves in the skin. The, the color changing happens because of thousands of tiny little organs, each of which is controlled by nerves and muscles, like the pixels on a computer screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is so it's just uh, kind of mind blowing how that all gets it coordinated. Is, it is mind blowing. I guess the the question here, and you can you can sidestep it if you want, but I mean the thing that people get really interested in is are octopuses specifically are they intelligent? Do they have consciousness? And my understanding from other people I've talked to about this is we don't know. We don't know if they have consciousness. Um, it's a nice speculation. Um, even sometimes when people talk about intelligence, I, I think they even say ah, they can do some kind of like um, different uh, high learning, uh, but it doesn't necessarily indicate the intelligence of solving uh, novel problems in, in, in particular ways. So I don't know, what do, you, what do you, I mean, having looked at this stuff and, and all the time that you spend on it, any ideas you have about both? intelligence or consciousness or, 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 or one of them, or what, what do you think? I think one of the best things about octopuses is that they force us to think about our own definitions uh-huh. for a lot of things, yeah. but, speci- but for those two things specifically, mm-hmm. I feel like that, that question is always interesting to reflect on because when you're looking for, for intelligence or consciousness, you need to define it. Yeah, yeah. And we, there isn't one accepted scientific definition of either one of those words. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of different perceptions of them, different attitudes about them. You know, I, I always, it's so fun to turn it back and people like, well, how do you know that you are intelligent or <laughs> conscious? You know, how do you know that you have consciousness? Right. What, what does it feel like to be conscious? You know, I think they're great questions. And I, I, totally encourage people to ask them. I don't have answers for them. I think that the, one of the, in, in terms of scientific research, it's often informative and useful to break it down to a task or an ability, like you mentioned, learning. Mm-hmm. So there's been lots of great experiments done with octopuses. Can they learn, um, learn to distinguish shapes and colors? Um, can they learn to distinguish between people? Absolutely. Can they learn from watching other octopuses do things? That's called observational learning. Um, there's some evidence for it, but it's, I think it's still kind of, kind of up for debate. We, we need some more research on that one. And, and then how long will they retain the learning? Does it mm. fade away? Is there long-term memory, short-term memory? Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of other cool things that get wrapped up in this too, like play behavior. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, do they play? Mm-hmm. Uh, they have personalities that's been shown not just in octopuses, but in some kinds of squid as well, that any given individual squid can be kind of graded on these axes of shy to bold. And they're not even consistent. It's not like a single squid is always shy. Um, this is the, um, if I remember right, I think it's the bottle tail squid, maybe a, a bobtail squid. It's one of the, one of the really little ones that just kind of hangs out on sand instead of it's not one of the flying squids that jets out of the water because those are super hard to study in the laboratory, <laughs> not because they're any less intelligent, but because they need massive amounts of space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they just can't do it. I mean, it's like trying to like get a bunch of big sharks or tuna mm-hmm. in the laboratory and, and give them tests. So anyway, but these little guys, 
they found that an individual one would have a pretty complex personality where it might be shy in interactions with potential predators, but bold in interactions with food. And then another individual might be the other way around. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's, um, there's clearly an immense complexity in their nervous systems and their, so in their like brains and in their behaviors. And, uh, and we keep finding out new cool things that that entails. And I think that's part of what draws us to them is that they are an opportunity to study questions of intelligence and consciousness in an animal that's not closely related to us, mm. which it's still interesting to study those questions in something like a dog or a parrot, but those are vertebrates. They're actually quite closely related to us, all things considered. Um, we, have, we share a lot of common ancestors with them, whereas the last common ancestor that we share with octopuses goes back more than 500 million years. So it really lets us reflect on the deeper meanings, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah, so I was going to ask about that kind of with their anatomy and then uh, one other piece here. So many people have pointed out that the eyes of the octopus is quite similar to the human eye. Uh, but better. Uh, but, but yeah, better than the human eye because the human eye has got a lot of it's flaws. Yeah, it's got a lot of flaws. Uh, eyes are eyes are great, but I mean, I like I'm happy with our eyes. But <laughs> um, you know, it's the, the what is it, the lens? The retina is actually backwards or whatever. It does like there's some issues with it. But yeah, I mean, you think this is a product of convergent evolution? Like you know, and I guess the that's an example. But the bigger question I have here is. My understanding is that most octopuses live two years, two and a half, three years. Um, it's so wild to me that they, they've evolved all this really cool stuff and they only live like three years max. Like that's wild. Yeah. Like it's, you're talking yeah. about like they're with their skin and they have the ink and they have three hearts and they have jet propulsion and they have eyes and they're probably very intelligent and, and then they're gone in three years. Like it's, you know, humans are, you know, can live, you know, 80, 100 years. Um, that's so it's wild. So why, why do we think they have such a, a short lifespan? Oh, my gosh. Do you know what? I love that you sort of ask those questions next to each other, the one about convergent evolution and the one about lifespan, because it actually turned into a question in my own head that I've never quite asked this way before, because we often talk about cephalopods as invertebrate fish, which is you know, it's a little bit biased. You could just as well call fish, you know, vertebrate cephalopods. Mm. But, but the, the core thing there is that they've been evolving alongside each other for a long time. And similar evolutionary pressures have led them in similar directions, which is why you have something like a squid and something like a fish that's extremely um, hydrodynamic. Uh, it's able to, like, there's a lot of similarities in the way they swim. Squid even have fins that help them stabilize and direct similar to fish fins. Um, there's, there's so much stuff. They've, they've evolved uh, similar circulatory systems, even though they use a different pigment for carrying oxygen. They've evolved very similar eyes, even though the orientation of them is different. They don't have that blind spot and they don't have color vision as far as we've been able to tell. And yet the way they form images and the way that they like, use binocular vision with two eyes is very similar. So there's so many ways that we can see these similarities between cephalopods and vertebrates that have come about as a result of convergent evolution. And then you go, but where's the long-lived cephalopod? Because within vertebrates, we have little rodents, you know, mice and things that may only live for a year or so. They mature in a few weeks or months. They're able to reproduce. They don't live much longer than that. Usually they get eaten. Um, but, uh, But then we also have humans and elephants, and you don't even have to be huge. Eh? Parrots can live for mm-hmm. a human lifetime mm-hmm. or longer. Mm-hmm. Um, so long lives have evolved multiple times in vertebrates, and we don't know of any cephalopod for whom that's true. The longest lived cephalopods that we know of are in the deep sea, and the cold environment there tends to slow down metabolism and life cycles. And so this is where we get the famous deep sea brooding octopus that sat on her eggs for four years. Four years. Yeah, an eternity, an eternity of four years. <laughs> right. But I mean, think about it. Even human, ge- there's no mammal that gestates that long. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a really long time. But, um, but we don't know how much longer she lived beyond that. And it could have been only another year or two, given what other cephalopods live lifespans are there. They all tend to be, even the longest lived ones are like maybe five years, you know, maybe six years. And so, um, 
And so this is the new question that I was saying is like, of all of the convergences that have evolved in cephalopods, why not a long lifespan? And I don't have an answer, um, but I can point out the fact that their short lifespans have been incredibly good for them. And they continue to be extremely advantageous in a rapidly changing ocean due to climate change, due to ocean acidification, because the quick turnover of being able to grow up and make babies in less than a year and usually make a large number of babies is really adaptive when your environment is inconsistent, is changing. And so it might just be that that works so well, there's never been enough pressure to to live any longer. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I like that answer, but I still feel like, that's just so much good stuff. Like, how, oh, I totally agree. Like, yeah, no, I'm not satisfied. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> there's no way. Like, there's no way. Like, it's it's so it's it, that's such like a, a for me. It's one of the, like the mysteries of life, I guess. Yeah, and you know what? It was actually the first mystery when I went to college from high school, and I was already totally obsessed with cephalopods. And I got into an undergraduate research program. So I said to my mentor, of course, I have to study octopuses. I need to study them. And it was the first thing he told me. He was like, this is what you need to figure out. Why are their lifespans so short? Yeah. That's- and 20 years later. <laughs> He's still, I mean, still, still searching. I guess, yeah. I guess one other thing we didn't mention, you sort of mentioned about the, the squid, but um, I'm sure many people have you know, seen videos. People have seen um, Finding Dory. Um, is is the, the octopus can live out of water for, what is it, a couple hours? Um, it depends on the species. Okay. But yeah, but a while. Yeah, it's not like 10 seconds mm-hmm. or even five minutes. Yeah. They can, you know, for, for a bit of time. And so, mm-hmm. and that's very interesting because it's, it's like, <laughs> we're so used to seeing them in the water, in the sea or whatever, but it's like when they're out of the water, they almost look like a different animal. I mean, it's just, yeah. it's so, it's so interesting. Um, I guess, how do they do that? How do they, how do they live outside for, I mean, a good amount of time. It's, it's interesting because it's actually another convergence with fish because there are some fish, right. uh, mud skippers and things that can sort of walk around with their fins on mm-hmm. land. And the, the species of both fish and octopuses that can do that have evolved that ability because it's a good way to get prey, basically. Mm. They're, they're intertidal animals that are looking to eat usually stuff like uh, crabs mm. or um, snails or things that are living in that environment. Just, just outside the water, mm-hmm. or like sometimes splashed, sometimes not. Um, and so, if they can, if they can hang out without the water, then their prey can't escape them by getting out of the water. Um, so it's, it's it's a good way to get food. Mm-hmm. And they do it um, by just, um, I mean, in a way, I would say it's sort of like holding your breath. You know, if they have enough water in their bodies, in their mantle cavities that they can be extracting the oxygen from to oxygenate their blood, to bring oxygen around their body, then for a period of time, they can continue to function Mm. and they won't pass out from lack of oxygen. Mm. Um, And often they're refilling. So I think this actually brings up what you were saying. They're a different sort of shape almost because they're shapeless. They don't have any hard parts. They don't have any structure. And so when you see an octopus like oozing from one tide pool to the another, it could probably take a breath, meaning like refresh the water around its gills. I might have said lungs earlier. If I did like scratch that, I meant gills. Okay, okay. gills. Yeah, gills. gills. Not lungs. <laughs> um, but, but they could do that in a relatively small puddle. So I think that sometimes they are sort of getting a breath, refreshing their need for oxygen while they still seem like they're out of the water because mm. they might be sort of dunking their mantle into a shallow tide pool between here and there mm. on their way to get a crab. Yeah, again, it's a- Oh, and the other thing is that they can do some exchange of gases, meaning like oxygen and carbon dioxide, right across their skin. Mm. Interesting. Because they do have very permeable skin, mm. which is a downside in some cases. It's quite likely the reason that they can't live in fresh water. Mm. Because the they don't have uh, sort of thick enough skin to keep from absorbing mm. too much mm. fresh water, and it throws off the balance with their interior saltiness. Mm. Is there a reason why they have three hearts? Is there? In fact, yes. Um, I mean, there has uh, to the, be, right? It's not. It's not as weird as it sounds. I know this is a little disappointing, but we have four hearts in a sense. Oh, okay, yeah. We have a four-chambered mm-hmm. heart, right? Our heart has four chambers, and each chamber is 
is doing serving a purpose. We, we have chambers that are pumping blood to our lungs to get oxygen, and then chambers that are pumping that oxygenated blood to the rest of our body. And really, the three hearts of a squid or an, of an octopus have just taken those different jobs and separated them out. So they have two hearts called brachial hearts that are on the gills. So two gills, one heart on each gill is pumping blood to that gill to get oxygen. And then the third heart, the systemic heart, is pumping the oxygenated blood to the rest of the body. So it's just like the chambers get mm. separated out. Yeah, really. yeah, that makes more sense. So for the book, so we, we've done a lot of the, many of the, the features of, of, of the, mostly the octopus. But in the book, there's something really cool the way it's organized is there are um, seven uh, sections. So there's uh, beaches, tides, uh, tide pools, sand flats, mud flats. Seagrass beds, kelp forests, rocky reefs, coral reefs, uh, open water, midwater, deep sea, and the Arctic. Um, so octopuses live everywhere on the planet. They're not just like in one region, like in, you know, off of Indonesia or off of, you know, Argentina or something. Like they live right. everywhere, right? Which is, which is not all animals of, of the, they, don't, they don't live everywhere. So I guess the big, the, the general question I have, we can talk about some of the specifics here is, is, I mean, how is that possible? So in the sense of there are different types of squid, cuttlefish, octopuses, I'm assuming in each of these places. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm sure that there are some octopuses that live in like the same species that live in multiple areas, right? It's not just in mm-hmm. one. So it's not like one species per location or things like that. Um, yeah. How have they yeah. diversified that way and spread that way? How, how have they done that? It's it's a good question. And it's interesting, actually. It made me think about because you were saying not all animals do that, which is true. But when you think about it, cephalopods are actually quite a large group. It's kind of a, it's a pretty high taxonomic order. It's just like one step down from a phylum, mollusks. Mollusks is a huge group. Um, so, for example, the another phylum is chordates. Um, that's all of the vertebrates. So all of us um, with a backbone, which is not just mammals, but also reptiles, amphibians fish, and a couple of other weird things that you don't even remember are chordates until you do your like <laughs> deep dive into bizarro little, little animals and sea things. And so just down from mollusks and cephalopods, just down from chordates, you could say is maybe, I'm trying to think of something roughly similar, but maybe like birds, for example. If you think about it, like a penguin is a bird mm-hmm. and a pigeon is a bird mm-hmm. and an emu is a bird. Mm-hmm. Like there's massive variation. All dinosaurs, there. all dinosaurs. And right, <laughs> right, 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 they're all dinosaurs. Um, so you're right, just like cephalopods are all, you know, it all goes back to the ammonites. Mm-hmm. But we did that last time. So <laughs> right, right. So it's really, um, it, it's kind of that level of body plan where there's a lot of potential. They've been around long enough and there's enough um, sort of potential in that body plan that they've adapted to lots of different environments. So you have, um, you have animals uh, that are really adapted to a structured environment. Mm. So that's like the cl- sort of classic octopus that you would see in an aquarium that has a den and it crawls mm-hmm. under mm-hmm. rocks mm-hmm. and it camouflages with rocks. And they often um, will, will uh, those are the ones that, um, that would be doing a lot of the hunting of crabs and snails. And they sort of the, like, they're almost, similar to terrestrial animals because we can relate so much to having a structure and a substrate that you're climbing on Uh a home you go back to Uh like it makes sense to us right but then there's all the midwater cephalopods and so that's octopuses and squid that have evolved in a world where there's no substrate they never touch down anything um they are living in this three-dimensional relatively empty space and so they've evolved to do totally different things with this body. Now, jet propulsion is still useful in both of those situations. An octopus uses jet propulsion to go quickly from one rocky outcropping to another in the, um, in a like close to shore area. And an octopus in the midwater in this big open zone might be using jet propulsion constantly, but slowly to swim from place to place to be slowly sort of scanning its environment and gathering in whatever bits of food it might encounter there. And they've often evolved to not have as many chromatophores, those Mm -hmm. are the color chain Mm -hmm. cells, but to be mostly transparent. Mm -hmm. 
so that they're gelatinous. And then they you, they, you end up with octopuses and squid that look almost like jellyfish mm. because there's so little to them. And uh, I was going to ask yeah. about that is you talk about midwater, open water. Could you talk about the mm-hmm. distinction? And yeah, I was thinking about this when I was reading it was, yeah, if they're not like kind of like we see a lot of the times, you know, in rocks and camouflaged and, you know, things that were, you know, out on the on tide pools or mud flats. How 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 do they obviously appear or look or behave differently just out in the open ocean as com- as compared to uh, the cephalopods that yeah are a little bit more rooted and kind of have a, a a home in a way that we kind of would think about it. Yeah. What are the what are the main differences there? One of the big differences is that nearly all of the squid out there have photophores. They have organs that can produce light. And we still don't know all of the things that they use that for, but they're definitely useful for camouflage, um, meaning that they can produce light in a way that makes their body harder for a predator to see or harder for prey to see, Um, often by a technique called counter-illumination, where they light up the underside of their body so that any prey underneath them or any predator underneath them looking up, they're bright, they're lit up, and so is the surface of the ocean with the sun or the moon behind it. And then, so, so, it's, so they blend in because they're lit up. Um, there are probably a lot of these midwater squid that are also using their photophores, their bioluminescence to communicate with each other, potentially to attract mates. Um, it's still like, we're still learning so much about it because it's a huge environment, but it's not one that is very easy for humans to explore. We tend to explore it with robots and, mm-hmm. um, uh, submersibles and things like that. Mm. And the, uh, the sort of the layers of the, of the sea are a little bit tricky. So we tend to use open ocean to mean parts of the ocean that are far away from shore. They're not being impacted by the, uh, the tides going up and down the shore. High tide, low tide don't mean as much when you're out in the open ocean. Um, and there's usually not, uh, they're far away from a reef or a kelp forest mm-hmm. or something like that. But it's also relatively close to the surface usually. So that's where you'd see your flying squid mm-hmm. is in the open mm-hmm. ocean. And then as you're going deeper, the midwater environment is usually not, um, those animals aren't interacting with the surface. Although then you have some that migrate from the surface, open ocean to the midwater mm-hmm. and back again. There's a, there's a huge amount of ocean animals, not just cephalopods that do that daily migration. Mm-hmm where they'll come down into the depths during the day because it's darker, it's easier to hide from predators and then back up towards the surface at night. A lot of squid do that. And a lot of them are following prey items that yeah. are doing it. Well, it's interesting because the temperature also is different at the surface of the water yeah. than it is in midwater. So it's just it's temperature. Yes, so they you, have to be able to cope with that. Right. So I actually want to ask about the Arctic and Antarctic regions and how kind of along that way of, of, of how... Uh, they're able to adapt to the cold conditions. And then we can kind mm-hmm. of go back and just kind of go through some of each of these environments, um, the big uh, challenges the environment is placing on, on their livelihood. So how, how, do they, how do they live in cold conditions in, in the Arctic and Antarctica? Well, so one of the neat things about being a marine animal, an ocean animal, is that the ocean can never get nearly as cold as the land. Um, because liquid water doesn't stay liquid Mm. at, you know, uh, at freezing temperatures. So they don't have to cope with the type of cold that penguins or polar bears or any of the animals that are living in the air have to cope with, um, because if water gets that cold, it freezes. And that's actually what happens. So salt water freezes at a slightly lower temperature. So uh, in Celsius, depending on the how salty it is, it's like negative one, negative two degrees Celsius. Um, And so then you get sea ice forming and it releases its salt. And so you get this like briny, extra salty water Mm -hmm. flowing down beneath it. So the the polar animals, it is very cold, but it's never going to be negative Celsius, essentially. Like Mm -hmm. they're living in at most negative one degree Celsius, often more like zero or one or two degrees. And that is still very cold. Um, but the way that they tend to cope with it is just by doing everything more slowly. Mm. Mm. And so they, uh, they tend to have longer lifespans. They're not quite as active hunters. A lot of them are scavengers rather mm. than active hunters. So they're just sort of slowly looking for 
large prey items that may have already died and and hmm. bits and pieces here and there. And so we have issues with uh, the planets, uh, with climate change, and many many aspects: ocean acidification, coral bleaching. So any any of these challenges that we're at the very least having to learn to adapt to in some cases in many ways hopefully we could change or reverse or things like that some some may not be able to but unfortunately but you know how do octopuses kind of um uh, you know kind of i mean this is their environment right we 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 don't live in the water like full time <laughs> so yeah. um you know right so it, it, it with the coral uh uh, reefs, there's the coral bleaching, ocean acidification, but then we also have other things too, such as plastic pollution in the open sea and midwater. Um, we also have melting ice, so for the ones that do live in Antarctica. So in each area, there's issues from uh, climate change. How do these, I mean, this is not just for cephalopods, but for many, all of the animals of the, of the ocean and seas, uh, this is their home. This is, their, this is mm -hmm. a big, big problem for them. But for octopuses and cephalopods, I guess generally, how do they? How do we see them adapting to some of these things? It's a really good question. They are, in some ways, more fortunate than a lot of other animals, um, partly because they're mobile for the most part, and so uh, a lot of times the adaptations that we see are animals changing their ranges where they live, moving in out of places that might be polluted and difficult to find prey in if they've been overfished by humans into more remote locations. Or um, another way that a lot of octopuses are lucky is that they tend to be more generalist. And so they often don't depend on a single prey species, but that they can adjust. Um, the giant Pacific octopus, for example, which lives along the um, Pacific coast of North America and, and into, um, I think even across over to the, the Pacific coast of, of Russia. I don't remember quite how far they go. Um, but they can take a lot of different prey items. Um, they'll eat clams in some places, crabs in others. Um, and so they, uh, they have an ability to be flexible that many other marine animals are not as capable of. Um, but they also have sensitivities. Uh, that skin that I mentioned is, is very permeable. And so they are sensitive to pollutants and toxins. They don't have, a, most of them don't have a shell that they can hide in. Uh, they just Every, whatever they're in, they're in. Uh, so if the ocean is getting more acidic, if it's getting greater concentrations of pollutants, then that's probably going to cross their skin um, and into their bodies. And, uh, and a lot of this stuff is still, still unknown. I think that the most clearly documented impacts on cephalopods from humans across the board are through fishing. Mm. Because people have been catching and eating squid and octopus and cuttlefish. As long as humans have lived near the ocean, and those fisheries have become industrialized often a bit later than other fisheries, um, often in the wake of fisheries for like literal fish collapsing. And then the people who fished those fish and are looking for something new might turn to squid or they might turn to octopus where they wouldn't have before. And so it's possible that we'll then see a wave of squid fisheries collapsing. Mm. Um, it's something that I think a lot of people are trying to look at carefully and, and hope that some increased regulation and oversight can prevent that same mm -hmm. thing from happening. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, this leads to my, my, my final question is um, what do you think should be the relationship humans have with cephalopods around the world? I mean, obviously um, you're mentioning some of these with the kind of uh, fisheries and the issues there, but I guess more broadly, I mean, what's the kind of relationship? How do we respect them as, as animals and, and respect their environment. But what, what do you think is the relationship that should be how we can cohabitate together? It's a really good question. Um, thinking about relationship with the other inhabitants of Earth, I think I like to come back to remembering that in a way we're all roommates, <laughs> we're all housemates, like we all depend on Earth. And that doesn't um, that, that sort of unity of thinking that the more, um, the cleaner, the more sustainable, the more, uh, just the more we think in terms of this being a home that we're all taking care of, I think the, the better everything gets both for humans and for all of the other animals that we share the planet with. 
And, and it changes. And I think that something that is super valuable is being willing to continue to learn and change ourselves. As you asked that question, my memory came to mind. I remember when I was pretty young, maybe five, six, seven, I loved to go to the park and feed the ducks. And I would ask my mom, like, can we go to the park? And we would bring rice crackers and, and crumble them up. And I loved the ducks coming to eat them. Nobody told us this was a bad <laughs> Don't idea. Don't right? the it wasn't ducks. Like, it's bad for their it intestines. Wasn't like we were <laughs> breaking the rules. We thought it was totally great. Right. Like we loved the ducks. We they're wanted sharing. Them. They're yeah, they're happy. Yeah. Right. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and and I mean, you're, we're laughing because now it's fairly common knowledge mm. that first of all, you shouldn't feed wildlife, right. even right. city ducks, right. Right. Uh, because it it does all kinds of things. Right. It prevents them from like finding the food that they that mm-hmm. is healthier for mm-hmm. them. It creates relationships with humans that can then become harmful. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, all kinds of stuff. And if you are going to feed them, like don't feed them bread and crackers. <laughs> like, that's the White worst wonder thing. bread. Yes, that's exactly what their, their stomachs right? need. Um, and so I think like owning up to the fact that not just as a species, but as individuals, we make mistakes when we don't know any better. Mm-hmm. And we don't, I think sometimes it's hard to admit that. And that makes us not want to change because we don't want to acknowledge that we did something bad in the first place. Mm. But we all did. It's it's normal. It's part of being human, right? And so I think that the more we can really not just acknowledge, but even celebrate when individuals like me are willing to admit that we made a mistake feeding the ducks in our youth and we're not going to do it anymore, <laughs> then uh, then things can get a lot better. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's very, it's a very nice example. Well, the book is called The Lives of Octopuses and Their Relatives, A Natural History of Cephalopods. As I said in the beginning, it's absolutely magnificent. Uh, the content is great. It's very, very uh, digestible. And the pictures are great. And the maps are great. And the illustrations are great. It's all, it's all very wonderful. I highly recommend it to many, many, many people. Uh, is there any place that you want uh, people to, you want to point people to or anything they should look up? Anything at all? Uh, well, um, that's a good question. Let's see. I am easily found online. Mm-hmm. If you want to, to listen to more of me rambling or find more of my writing, uh, Dana Stoff, it's a pretty distinctive name. So whatever the social media du jour is, <laughs> uh, I will try there to get go. on it and make myself available. There you go. That's great. <laughs> always a blast, Donna. Always, always, always welcome here. Thanks. I really, really Thanks. enjoy our conversations. And so uh, this was this was a lot of fun. It's a big, big thanks. You're so welcome. Thank you.